Thanks for checking out this week's sermon from Bonavista Baptist Church. We invite, encourage, and equip you to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. There's an old hymn that we still sometimes sing in the church, and it goes like this. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me, calling, O sinner, come home. It's a beautiful hymn. It's very popular. I think Elvis sang it. I think uh, Alan Jackson covered it in country music. Lots of people have sung it. Maybe Samuel will sing it for us sometime as well. Uh, It's a beautiful hymn and very popular. It is not based on this passage. Because in this passage, Jesus doesn't speak softly or tenderly. He actually speaks very directly and very urgently. In fact, I think Jesus often saved his soft and tender words for those who are marginalized, for the oppressed, for the poor, uh, for the prostitute. He often dealt with them very softly and tenderly. But for the religious leaders and for those in authority and power, he often spoke to them very directly and very urgently. And that's what we find going on in this passage. Well, the backdrop to the passage are two incidents that seem to be in the popular headlines, at least at the time. The first incident is um, a tragic, unexpected death that came from an act of violence, actually state-sanctioned violence. It's when Pilate killed a number of Galilean men who were going to worship. We don't know the exact incident, but it's very much in keeping with the kind of thing that Pilate would have done. That's the first incident. The second one was an act of calamity. It was a kind of natural, accidental disaster. A tower fell on a number of workers. And that's caught people's attention. And it's caught people's attention because they're beginning to wonder, why did these men die? Uh, Did they do something wrong? Uh, Did they sin? And that comes out in the question that Jesus asks. Because he says, do you think that these men who died were worse sinners than the rest of you? And that was a, a common understanding at the time, that if you were wealthy and you had an abundance, then you must be doing something right and were blessed by God. But if you are facing suffering, then you must have done something wrong. It's very much the way that Job's friends treated him when he lost his, his wealth and his family and his own health. His friends accused him of doing something wrong. They said, Job, just confess and and confess to your sin and set it right with God, and you'll be restored. But that's not what's happening here. And Jesus undermines that. He he says, no, don't think that way. Don't think it's because they were somehow worse sinners that this tragedy fell on them. Instead, use this story to change your lives, to do something different with your life. We have to be very careful not to attribute natural disasters uh, to the judgment of God, as if God is judging one particular people and somehow we are safe or righteous because we haven't been judged in that way. Uh, But that's sometimes our nature, isn't it? Sometimes our nature is to compare or sometimes think that we are safe or that we are somehow righteous because we haven't faced the calamity that someone else has faced. But instead, Jesus turns this whole incident around and puts the question back to the audience. Jesus says, in light of the fact that tragedy may overwhelm us at any moment, 
what will you do with the life that you have right now? There's a, a pastor, Matt Skinner, and um, theologian, he said this. Life's fragility gives it urgency. Jesus turns attention away from disasters, victims, and why questions to address those of us who thus far have survived the hazards of the universe and human society. We should not mistake our good fortune as evidence of God's special blessing. So after talking about the two headlines that were capturing people's attention, Jesus goes on to tell a very important parable that drives home his point. And the parable has really two parts to it. It's got a warning part, and it's got a grace part or a kindness part. The warning is direct and urgent and basically goes something like this. Judgment is coming. That's the warning part. Really, it's an echo of what John the Baptist said earlier in Luke's gospel. Uh, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And then listen to this. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you see the parallels between John the Baptist and what he was saying and this story about a fig tree that Jesus has just told the people? It's, it's a story of judgment. It's a story of coming judgment for people to beware. Now, in many ways, that story applied directly to the nation that both John the Baptist and Jesus were addressing at the time. But it also applies to all of us as individuals. You see, we have an opportunity right now to live productive, meaningful lives. And so the question is, what are we doing with the life that God has given to us? The reality is that none of us are guaranteed a specific number of days or, or weeks or even years. And not to be overly morbid, but the reality is that we live in a very violent and unpredictable world. Accidents happen. Plagues come. This is the course of history and the course of what it means to be human living in this world, and Jesus knows that. So what do we do? What do we do with that uncertainty, with that unpredictability? Well, the answer might surprise you. The answer Jesus gives is repent. Repent while you still have time. Repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia. And it really literally means after thought. It's kind of that idea of reflecting on your actions after the fact and assessing whether they were good or bad, whether they were sinful or beneficial for humanity. And so repentance starts with thinking, thinking about our past actions. It means a fundamental change in our thinking that leads to a fundamental change in our behavior. That's really the essence of repentance. So Jesus is saying, now's the time to repent. Before judgment comes, before the axe comes to the tree, before tragedy strikes, produce now the fruit of repentance. Well, what is that fruit? 
What is Jesus expecting? Obviously, we're not fig trees or apple trees. What is the fruit of repentance that Jesus is looking for and expecting? Well, for that answer, we can go back again to John the Baptist. Uh, Because in that story, when John the Baptist says, produce the fruit of repentance, he then goes on to spell it out for the different groups that were coming to be baptized by him. Here's what it says early in Luke. And the multitudes asked John, What then shall we do? And he answered them, He who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. So for the wealthy, for those who had abundance, John said, Repentance is changing the way that you think about your possessions and about your responsibility to the poor. That's repentance for you. But then he goes on to say, Uh, Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and John said, uh, he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed to you. So for tax collectors, repentance is changing the way that they viewed their job and the vulnerability of the people they served. They had to change their thinking so that their behavior might change as well. Then the passage goes on to say, soldiers also came to John and said, And we, what shall we do? And John said to them, Rob no one by violence or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So for soldiers, the repentance meant change the way you think about your position of power and what you do with it. So do you you see the pattern? The pattern is that repentance looks a little different for every different individual and different group of people. As they reflect on their actions of the past, and assess them in the light of God's law, and then see what needs to be changed. So repentance isn't just changing our way of thinking, but it's transforming our behavior by the grace of God. So the path of repentance looks something like this. Taking time to reflect on our actions, and then having remorse for those actions that are sinful or wrong, and then requesting forgiveness from God and perhaps even from others, and then resolving to change our behavior, not on our own strength, but by God's grace. So that's the first part of the parable, is the parable is a warning. It's an urgent warning. Repent while you can. Have a change in your thinking that leads to a change in the behavior all by God's grace. Have a, have a turning of your mind that actually turns you away from sin and turns you to God. That's the important thing that we need to do in the light of the tragedies we face in our world, in the light of the uncertainty of our time here on earth. Repent while you can. But I mentioned that there's another part to the parable, and the part is a kindness or a grace. You see, this tree had already been around for three years, and hadn't produced any fruit. And I know some people will say, well, the three years was because it was a young tree and and it hadn't had time to mature yet to produce the fruit. Well, that might be the case, but we're not told that in the story. All we're told in the story is that the owner of the land feels that this tree is just taking up space. It's just taking up space. It's useless. It's not living a productive life, and so let's just chop it down. But the gardener says, 
Instead of chopping it down, give it one more chance. That's the grace part. That's the grace of God. Instead of chopping it down, give it one more chance to be productive, to produce, in our, in our case, the grace and the beauty of repentance. We find this in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, Peter's talking about um, why God seems to be delaying coming in judgment. And people are beginning to wonder, has God forgotten to come? Is he not coming back at all? Has he changed his mind? And Peter says, no, that's not the case. Here's the answer. That God is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's what's happening with this tree. That's what the story is about. Don't cut it down now. Let's give it a time to bear fruit and bear the fruit of repentance. So now is the time to repent. Now is the time to have a change of mind that leads to the transformation of our very lives. Now is the time to turn to God. In Acts chapter 3, the Apostle Peter is speaking to a crowd of people. And the crowd of people, this was after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This was after the Spirit came at Pentecost. And some people in this crowd might have just a few weeks before been shouting, crucify him, about Jesus. But now Peter says this to them. And now, friends, I know you had no idea what you were doing when you killed Jesus, and neither did your leaders. But... Now it's time to change your mind. Now it's time to repent. Turn your face to God so he can wipe away your sins and pour showers of blessings upon you. Peter says, repent and believe the gospel. I know you didn't understand what was happening in the past, but now is your chance. Take full advantage of the opportunity to change the way you think about Jesus. That's what Peter is inviting them to do. And that's really the urgency and the opportunity that we find in this parable. Before the axe comes to the tree, before calamity strikes, before judgment comes, take this opportunity to bear the fruit of repentance. Well, part of the power of the parable comes through the suspense that it generates. We're left wondering a number of things. Will fruit emerge uh, in time to stop the coming of the axe? Uh, will the opportunity of a second chance pay off? Will the gardener be successful in cultivating the tree to bear fruit? We don't know the answers to those questions. We're left in a kind of suspense. We're left wondering. And the truth is in life, we're often left wondering with why questions as well. Uh, as the disciples were wondering, why were those men from, from Galilee, why were they killed and not others? Why, why were the men destroyed by this tower? We're left wondering with these why questions. But Jesus wants to take those incidents, those moments of tragedy, and make us reflect on our own lives. Matt Skinner again says this. It bears repeating that Jesus does not explain the causes of violence that nature and human beings regularly inflict on unsuspecting people. He does not blame the victims. He does not attempt to defend creation or the creator when why questions seem warranted. 
At least in this scene, he offers no theological speculation and inflicts no emotional abuse. But here's the point. He asks, with an urgency fueled by raw memories of blood and rubble on the ground, what about you? How will you live the life that you get to live? That's the challenge to us today.